Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This episode includes discussions of sensitive topics, including suicide, transphobia, homophobia, sexual violence, and drug use. Listener discretion is advised. If you or someone you know needs help, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. In the summer of 2019, weeks after 17-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen disappeared from the streets of Vancouver, Washington, there seemed to be a slowdown in media coverage surrounding the case. Nikki's family knew she was in danger and that she wouldn't have left on her own. But police had hardly released any new details in the investigation, which led news reports to offer the public only vague information. Vancouver police, they're asking for your help tonight to help find a missing teenager, 18-year-old Nikki Kuhnhausen. She was last seen leaving her home in early June. Detectives are asking anybody who might know anything about where she might be to please reach out to them. Eventually, the rumor mill started raging around town. People speculated that Nikki had been abducted. Some even theorized it was the work of a serial killer who was targeting trans women. Others suggested Nikki was taken out of Washington and forced into sex trafficking. No one in the public knew the name David Bogdanov yet or that behind the scenes, police were closely examining his background and his whereabouts on June 6th, the morning Nikki disappeared. Detectives had to keep that information close to the vest. It was the best and only lead Vancouver police detective Dave Jensen had, and he needed to keep it under the radar so as to not compromise his investigation into the 25-year-old construction worker. You know, from my perspective, yeah, we'd like her picture out there. We'd like to have people that maybe know something come in and talk to us. But at the same time, I also don't want to share anything with the media about the investigation. Detective Jensen had written dozens of pages of search warrants and phone records revealed David was the last person to have contact with Nikki. But David wasn't returning Detective Jensen's phone calls and had seemingly vanished into thin air just like Nikki had. David's own family members even denied knowing where he was. I mean, we're nudging closer and closer towards suspicion because of the fact that he's not calling me back. And his brothers were, you know, playing the the three monkeys, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil kind of thing. So I, I was growing increasingly suspicious that David, you know, would know something about her, her disappearance. What Detective Jensen didn't know is that David Bogdanov had already left the country. He had purchased a one-way ticket out of Portland, Oregon, the very day Nikki disappeared. I'm Ashley Korslin. You're listening to Should Be Alive, a KGW original podcast. Episode 2 of 6, Person of Interest. 
While the investigation into her daughter's disappearance unfolded behind the scenes, Lisa Woods was struggling intensely with her grief. Nikki had been listed on the website for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and advocates surrounded Lisa as she watched news coverage about Nikki begin to fade before her eyes. Lisa felt like she was screaming into a black hole, and no one could hear her cries for help. Life seemed to keep on moving for everyone but her. The 2019 Vancouver Fireworks Spectacular. By the 4th of July, Nikki's disappearance had almost seemed like an afterthought to thousands of people who flocked to watch the town's beloved fireworks show at the Fort Vancouver National Historic Site. Families held tightly to one another, their faces illuminated in a rainbow of colors as they gazed into the night sky. This Independence Day was two days before Nikki's 18th birthday and almost one month to the day she went missing. On this day, Lisa Woods attempted suicide. I went to a mental institution um, for a little while and then to an adult family home because um, I couldn't be trusted with my pills. After her suicide attempt, life came with a tidal wave of emotions. Each day that passed somehow moved fast and slow, all at the same time. Then, one morning, Lisa got a phone call that helped pull her from the fog of her deep depression. It was from Detective Dave Jensen. I got a phone call from him saying that he was a very good detective and that I don't get to end this case until it's over and that I need to be here for Nikki when he brings her home. What was it like to have him tell you that at that point in your life? He was very stern. <laughs> like... Like a dad. <laughs> he was very stern. And uh, so I think he promised him I wouldn't do that again. Mm -hmm. In that moment where you're thinking, I do, I want to be here for Nikki. Yeah. That, it, did it, that reshape kind of how mm -hmm. you looked at it? Yeah, because he, he believed. And so I just fed from his belief, you know, that she was going to come back to me. Lisa prayed for that day in and day out. Nikki was her everything. She was my heart and soul. You just had that special bond, it sounds like. Well, yeah, and I looked at it like, you know, she's going to have struggles in her life that are a little bit more challenging than her brothers. And so I had a tender spot in my heart for her. Um, I wanted her to know that, you know, I always had her back no matter what. From an early age, Lisa says, it became apparent that Nikki's sex assigned at birth did not match her gender identity. Nikki knew who she was, and Lisa supported her. I was super proud of her. I mean, you know, she she always wore my high heels. Then she would go to the daycare, and her favorite time was dress-up time. She'd be the first to put on the dress-up dress. And she just liked to dress up and have a tiara and... She, she was she was beautiful. An old photograph of Nikki around age three or four shows her wearing a patriotic Olympics jersey with sparkly blue letters that read USA. Nikki is proudly wearing a tiara. As she got older, Nikki decorated her room in Hannah Montana posters. She and Lisa would spend their weekends talking about life and binging the show Vampire Diaries on the couch. 
Oftentimes, you could find Nikki practicing her catwalk around the house in Lisa's heels, as if she was starring in her own personal episode of America's Next Top Model. Around the age of 12, Nikki finally felt brave enough to wear a dress in public for the first time. She had this beautiful white dress, and it was the first time she went out in public, and we took selfies up against a tree. She was, she was very confident. That must have been a proud moment for you, or was oh. it kind of scary? Like, what, what, what was that, the emotions like of that? I, I was super proud of her. I mean, you know, she, she knew who she was, and we, we accepted her, you know, her dad and I. You know, she knew who she was from a very early age. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid for her, but also I wasn't aware of the hatred for transgenders. I was um, not educated on that. Nikki's brother Alex, though. I'm Alex Kuhnhausen. Would witness that hatred firsthand. Um, I'm Nikki's older brother. He often found himself sticking up for Nikki when people would bully her for how she dressed or looked. Were you the uh, really protective older brother? Always. And there, I mean, there's probably hundreds of guys I fought because they talk crap to her, you know, and I've gotten in a lot, a lot of trouble, you know. And it's like I would never not fight somebody for her, you know, and it's like I don't want to be that person, but at the same time, it's like I take care of my own, you know. If I care about somebody, I care about them. Alex, who was three years older than Nikki, says the world dealt the Kuhnhausen children a tough hand from an early age. They had to grow up fast. Alex was very candid with us about his own struggles in life. Um, a little bit about myself. I've, I've had a hard life. Been in and out of prison a lot. Mm, trying to figure out a different way of life. I got two years clean and sober. I just re- released from prison last month. Would you say you had a, a tough upbringing? Did Nikki too with you? Yeah, or was yeah it... all of us did. What were the early years like? We were in foster care a lot. So it's like very sheltered, you know, and none of us like that. None of, you know, because we've seen how our parents were. My dad was always in and out of prison. My mom was always getting drunk and getting high, you know, and so it's like, we wanted that, you know, we wanted that freedom, that that fun life. We wanted to be kids. Alex and Nikki were two kids in what was a large, blended family. They bounced in and out of their parents' homes and foster care for most of their early years. Alex and Nikki struggled with the rules set by their foster parents. They didn't like those boundaries. They would often run away, get into trouble, and then come back. It went on like this for years until Alex, Nikki, and their siblings eventually went back to living full-time with their parents. Life was hard, but it taught them to rely on one another. And Alex cared deeply about Nikki. There was no denying that. But family relationships and dynamics are complicated. For Alex, accepting Nikki as transgender did not come easily. From time I can remember, you know, she was wearing tiaras and dresses and eight-inch high heels and that didn't fit her feet. They were not for her. They were my mom's. They weren't hers, you know. So it's like, for me, it was a lot tougher, you know. I would always be like, you're my brother. You're going to be my brother for the rest of my life. I mean, I'd never call you she, her, you know what I mean? I wouldn't, for the longest time, I was like that. 
I've done a lot of prison time. I'm 23 years old and I've done seven years in prison. So it's like I've done that mentality of, you know, you're, you're a man, you're a man, you're a woman, you're a woman. And that's that, you know, don't be who you're not, you know, God made you who you are and, you know, God designed you to be that person. So don't change because you want to change. But at the same time, it's, it's a lot different when it's your family member, you know, because then you really truly see all the time of who they want to be and how much effort and time they take into putting into who they want to be. But there came a pivotal moment when Alex had just turned 18. He was freshly out of a two and a half year stint in a juvenile corrections facility. Nikki was just 15. And she sat me down one time and it was just me and her and she started crying and she's like, I, you know, I, I don't want to be a boy. It's not who I am. And like, it just, and from then on, I always called her she, her, you know? And so it's just like being able to see how she expressed herself, you know, and being able to see how much it really meant to her about who she was. I learned to accept it. By most accounts, Nikki Kuhnhausen had gone through more in her first 15 years of life than a lot of adults. But she found a path for her future by the time she entered high school. She set her sights on becoming a professional makeup artist to the stars. She dreamt of working for performers like Nicki Minaj. What was her high school experience like? Well, she didn't like getting up early in the morning. Here's mom, Lisa Woods. So she went to a special class where she didn't have to be there till 10.30 and then was done at 2.30 and it was computer online and so she, she did really well there. She spent a lot of time doing selfies in the bathroom and um, doing people's makeup and, and she had a lot of friends, yeah. She was really into makeup, huh? Yeah, she was very good at it and that is all all her. She didn't watch any tutorials. She just knew how to do it. She was amazing. There were a couple of times she wouldn't go to school because her eyebrows didn't turn out right, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Were you like Nikki? <laughs> uh, like, they look beautiful. And she's like, how do you know? <laughs> yeah. Nikki was beautiful and had an infectious and magnetic personality. She didn't have to go far to find people who wanted to be around her. Uh, how, how do you describe Nikki to people, like, personality-wise? Like, she was great. Um, Best friend Taylor Watts met Nikki in elementary school as neighbors. She says Nikki was always the life of the party. She was loving, she was caring, she was happy, so fun. Um, we are always laughing together, so. What was your favorite thing to do together, like, on a weekend? Her take pictures. <laughs> That's all she would do. We like would selfies? All, yeah, we'd all be together and she's just sitting there taking videos. <laughs> so oh, she loved it. She loved herself. But even with an unwavering, uninhibited sense of self-assurance, Nikki had a vulnerable side. Despite not having much growing up, Nikki would be the first to give her shirt off her back to anyone who needed it. She was always rooting for the underdog. And at times, Nikki had a hard time saying no to things and to people who didn't always have her best interests at heart. Um, she just hung out with the wrong people. She was doing drugs and whatnot. Um. These new friendships nearly cost Nikki her life. 
More than a year before she disappeared, Nikki got into a car with a group of these so-called friends one night, and they drove across the river to Portland. Taylor, who didn't know these people and wasn't there, recalls what Nikki would later tell her. The man driving the car pulled over at the end of a dead-end road. And there was a couple in the back seat, and Nikki was in the passenger, and he said, let's get out of the car. And she said they went, you know, kind of in the dead end by some trees and stuff, and she, she doesn't, you know, she just heard ringing. Um, and she fell to the floor. That ringing was a burst of gunfire. The man had shot Nikki six times. Somehow, she was able to get herself up off the ground and run. Frantically, she knocked on three doors of nearby homes before someone would help her and call 911. A life flight helicopter later flew Nikki to a Portland hospital. She had been shot in the stomach, leg, both arms, shoulder, and neck. Amazingly, she survived. We were scared at first. Um definitely scared. I was just like, wow, she was okay. Like, you know what I mean? Like, she Taylor visited Nikki in the hospital three times during her recovery. Uh, we were all shocked. Um, obviously very happy she was okay at the end. Um, and I think that kind of was like a little like step back for her. But I mean, you would think so with the next day or, you know, right when she got out, she was doing her makeup and, you know, back at it again, <laughs> all bullet wound <laughs> up and stuff. So... It, it didn't push her back at all, you know? Mm. She was still Nikki. According to Taylor, Nikki refused to tell her friends who shot her or talk to police. As far as Taylor knows, the shooter was never arrested. And to this day, she doesn't know why he shot Nikki. But Taylor suspects it was because of Nikki's gender identity. A shooting fueled by hate. I think it was hateful. I mean, I mean, Nikki didn't know why, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, she said it just happened, you know, she wasn't expecting it or anything. Uh, I think it kind of opened her eyes a little bit too, and uh, unfortunately, you know. Like to, to the people she was maybe hating. Yeah, and to be careful. So in that fateful summer of 2019, when Nikki had stopped responding to calls and messages, Taylor couldn't help but think that her disappearance was connected to the man who shot her. Maybe he had come back to finish what he started. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. While friends had theories on who might have taken Nikki, detectives had just one person of interest, David Bogdanov, the man identified by phone records as the last person to communicate with Nikki. Investigators just didn't know where David was, and they had no clue that while they were canvassing the Vancouver area, searching for him, David had been out of the country the entire time. What I didn't know is that he's in, that he's in Ukraine at this time. You know, while I'm actually reaching out to him, 
David had flown to Ukraine on the same day Nikki went missing, June 6th. On July 14th, he boarded a plane in Kyiv, Ukraine. He had been there almost six weeks by now and was about to fly home to the United States. At 9.40 p.m., David departed Kyiv and took the 5,600-mile flight back to Portland, Oregon. On July 15th, just before midnight, David Bogdanov landed back on U.S. soil. Almost two more months would pass before Detective Jensen would finally make contact with David. On September 5th, Jensen tries a new strategy to reach him. He creates an anonymous Snapchat account and sends David a message. Within an hour, Jensen could see the message was read. I sent him a message, basically just said, uh, this is who I am, Detective Jensen. I investigate missing persons. Please contact me at my desk phone. Thanks. I gave him the desk phone to my, my office. But David doesn't take the bait. He doesn't write back. Jensen waits a few days before making his next move. And then he sends David a second message. I decided to get a little bit snotty. And I said, David, it looks like you haven't tried to contact me. I don't know if it's intentional or an oversight. It's very important I meet with you to talk about Nikki. If I can't get a response, I may be forced to ask the public to assist me in reaching you. Please call me at this phone number. Thanks, Detective Jensen. So I let him know that, you know, that my, my next step was to basically put his picture as a person of interest and his name on the news. The threat of being outed to the public worked. The very next day, David responds. He said, hi, detectives. So sorry, I've been caught up with work. And when I saw the last message, I was working with very bad service there and then just forgot to, to get back to you. Can I call you tomorrow? And when he finally calls, David Bogdanov agrees to meet in person for an interview with detectives. Were you surprised he agreed to do an interview in the first place? Looking back? A little bit, yes, um, but but keep in mind, I mean, I think he realized that I was not going to go away. And, and people usually agree to talk to the police because they, they think they can, they think they can get something out of it. They're not talking to you for their, you know, to, to help you. Jensen was anxious. This would be the first time police would hear David's account of the night he met up with Nikki Kuhnhausen. You want to sit down with them and and talk to them face to face. You need to have that thing going on where you're, you have sort of a conversational relationship and you can see body language and discomfort and, and all that. It's an art form, isn't it? Do sure, it, yeah, yeah. Interviewing. Yeah, it, it is. You know, you see some detectives and officers do them and it's like a science to them. I mean, you go in there with a plan, but the second the suspect starts to talk, your plan isn't necessarily gonna go the way you thought it was, right? So. At this point, there had been no trace of the 17-year-old and also no proof a crime had been committed. How did that come to be? He just agreed to come to the police department? And finally, four months after Nikki disappeared... He did, yes. David Bogdanov arrives at the Vancouver police station to sit down with Detective Jensen for an interview. Uh, this is Detective David Jensen with Vancouver Police. This recording is from the 49-minute police interview. We've edited it for time and clarity. 
and the date is October 2nd, 2019. The time is 6.35 p.m. I have with me uh, David Bogdanov. Uh, David, were you aware that this is recording? Yep. Do I have your consent to record this conversation? Yep. you have any reason, any idea why that well, I I'm mean, asking you? I was told missing person's case. Okay. That's, that's it, but I, uh, I did run across this person just, just once. Okay. Can you tell so, me about that? Um, I was I was planning on heading out to go head out to uh, downtown to go to a bar and uh, David's demeanor is casual, almost nonchalant, as he tells his version of events, as if it's no big deal to be sitting in front of investigators at a police station. I don't remember exactly what time. He tells them he was drinking heavily the night he met Nikki, and his memory is hazy because it was months ago. He recalls being with his brothers, Arthur and Stan, when he saw Nikki walking alone down the street. I saw her walking. I walked up to her, um, asked her, asked her, I mean, why is she walking alone in the middle of the night? And she said that she had some big fight with her boyfriend, and she's really upset. And uh, um, offered her my jacket because it was really cold outside, and then I. Well, introduced myself and uh, I invited if she wanted to come join us and she didn't. So I just gave her my jacket and we parted police there. Okay. Um, I did give her my Snapchat name. Um, wanted to just exchange Snapchats and she didn't have a phone with her. So I asked her, why you gave her my Snapchat? She said she'll remember it and that's it. And then shortly after, I don't know exactly, I don't remember how exactly long it was, but Maybe a couple hours later, she added me over on Snapchat. Mm -hmm. um, and trying to remember exactly. I was drinking a lot that night. David says he and his brothers continued on their way to go drinking downtown. But by the time they got there, the bars were closed. So the men drove back to Stan's apartment. Nikki had now gone back to the apartment where she was staying and used her roommate's phone to contact David on Snapchat. The two then made plans to meet, David says, so he could get his jacket back. And I was wanting to get my coat back too because she was, like I said, she was walking alone in the middle of the night yeah. by herself and it was, it was chilly, so I gave her my coat and just let her, let her uh, go with it. And uh, what was it? so she sent me an address. She sent me an address and I came there, got my coat from her and I was driving my brother's work van. And well, she got in, I got my coat back. And- So you uh, did see her again? I did see her again once, yeah. Okay. Um, and then my brother- What time of day was that? I don't exactly remember. It was super early in the morning. Really, really, really early in the morning. Okay. Like daylight early or? Just like, I think it was just like barely sunrise. Um, so you said you went and picked her up? Yeah, well, I, I was I was hoping to just go get my coat from her and that's it. And uh, she ended up coming with me and she was, when, when she got in the car, I don't know what was, what was wrong with her, but what she was on, she was behaving very, very, very strange, very weird, like quiet and kind of like looking, she'll look at you, but it's like she's looking past you, you know, kind of, she was just, behaving really weird and um, you've been up all night at this point yeah it was, it was a long night for me um, it was a long night for me a long night 
that bled over into the early morning hours of June 6th. According to David, Nikki asked him to drive her to a friend's house where she had lost her phone. But first, David had to get the van he was driving back to his brother Stan. David took Nikki to pick Stan up from his apartment in downtown Vancouver, then out to a suburb called Brush Prairie to get his car from Arthur's house. David says at that point, Stan left in the van, and David and Nikki sat in his car talking. And uh, we drove out and uh, we're kind of just parked there in the driveway, chit-chatting a little bit. And, and then she told me that she's not a she. Okay. And I didn't even catch on to that at all uh, until then, and I was shocked to find that out and just uncomfortable and really, really disturbed. Um, and I asked her to please get out of the car because this is just really weird for me. I'm just not comfortable being around that <laughs> those kind of people. Um, and that's it. That's where we parted ways. Pretty much it. Okay. So, so you're the last person to ever see her? I don't know. And that's why we wanted to talk to you. Okay, because you're... Because you literally just... After she left with you, no one ever saw her again. I don't know what I, what I can tell you. What else? I mean, it's just... Up to that point, like I said, I was... I didn't... Had no clue who yeah. she was, what she was. But she got out of the car there in Brush Prairie? Yeah, right in that area. She just got out of the car and I took off and went to, went to my brother's job site. Um, this story was inconceivable to detectives, that Nikki just walked away, disappearing into the black of night. Here's Detective Jensen. He simply said that, you know, when she basically told him that she was transgender, he got very upset by that and asked her to get out of the van and then she walked away. And he never saw her again, he said. He never saw her again. What did you make of that at that point? Oh, that was a lie. Uh, it just didn't, it doesn't fit. It wasn't very believable, the story that he was telling. Okay. Back in the interview room at the Vancouver Police Department. I want to clear the air a little bit on what you guys were up to that night. Uh, first of all, is this is this her? Um, Detective Jensen takes out a few photographs of Nikki and sets them on a table in front of David. David studies Nikki's face intently. And this picture on the left looks a little bit, kind of resembles the other pictures. Kind of strange, different. And did you do you remember a name that you said? I, I don't. I don't really. I honestly don't. Okay. Then um, Jensen presses David on specifics about that morning. Because you sent her a message where you said uh, white van again. Yeah. And that was at five thirty in the morning. Times, locations. Probably, maybe. Okay. And more about David's brothers. What did they know about what happened to Nikki? When Jensen had talked with Arthur and Stan a few months before this interview, they claimed to know nothing. I just still think it's really weird that neither of your brothers that I talked to when I 
told them specifically about her and showed them her picture that nobody well Arthur never never saw her at all Arthur never met her Stan Stan was also sleep deprived and uh, like he did he, it was an all-nighter for him Both well, so, so, okay, hang on. So, so detective Jensen just wasn't buying it I actually challenged David on that that point and he does that by playing into David's emotions saying whatever he needs to say to get David to open up remember Interviewing is an art form. So, so you're telling me that you and your brother, so I, I'm a guy, you're a guy, okay? You're telling me that if if you were in the car with a girl who suddenly turned out to have a penis, that that's not going to be a topic of conversation. No, she guys, wasn't in the car when we found that you out. Guys, but you're not going to tell this story later? Oh, later? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did, I did. I mean, this is something that people are going to talk about. You're going to, this, this is going to be the topic of the day. Yeah. Right? And he kind of partially, you know, conceded that point because I think he realized that it just sounded completely unreasonable that a couple of brothers would not be, you know, completely giving each other a hard time over over this this incident, right? I, I don't, it seems like you guys should have been talking about this. Arthur should have been aware of this. Stan should have been aware of this, Okay. And then weeks later, when I go to, to talk to them about this, n- neither of them have the first clue what I'm talking about. Um, I mean, it wasn't a big hot topic. So, to you know, that just stunk to high heaven. And I was, you know, pretty convinced that at that point that Stan and, and Arthur, at least Stan, were definitely covering for him and lying about not knowing about this encounter taking place at all. Both your brothers had a very sort of laissez-faire, sort of, I don't know what's going on in David's life. Beats me. That, that, that's, that's the way they were. And uh, that, that pegged my BS meter, frankly, because um, I don't think you guys are estranged from each other. I think you hang out together. Uh, I mean, we honestly were barely hang out together. Did they not tell you I was asking for you? Yeah, they did. They did. They asked me, uh, or they told me, and I mean, I didn't know how to do it. Do I call nine one one and tell them? I left my parts. Oh, I actually, I I was asking Arthur. Stan, I didn't ask, but I asked Arthur if he had a card from you or anything, and he said he lost it. Um, it was somewhere in the middle of all his papers. Every poster out there internet thing with her name has my name and my email address I didn't phone number I didn't see any of any of those you didn't see any of that no I didn't see not one article not one post okay so have you never heard about this in the news or on Facebook or anything like that I personally didn't see it nobody has brought this up to you uh yeah I was I was told about it but I didn't see it um Why, why did you not say okay so I really need to talk to the cops I was the last person to see her I, I don't know if, if I was the last person or not. I mean, I mean, I have people calling me saying, hey, I saw a girl that looked just like her uh, at the Fred Meyer six weeks ago. Thought you'd like to know. You know, there's all kinds of people calling in tips. I mean, and, I, and I, yet you spent time with her, had her in the car, and then dropped her off. I, I don't understand why you I don't wasn't, I wasn't aware how, how soon after that she disappeared. I didn't look into those details. I didn't read articles myself or anything. Okay. Um, Jensen then reveals another card in his hand. So, um, so when you were out that night, or the early morning, 
Um, at about four o'clock in the morning, uh, you called Mr. Peep's adult superstore. That sound familiar? Nah, I don't know. Maybe it was my brothers or something that called. Okay. Maybe me. Okay. Jensen explains he has phone records showing David called more than a dozen numbers connected to prostitution ads around the time he met up with Nikki. Okay. So somebody called Mr. Peeps and they talked to him for a minute and five <laughs> seconds. So probably asking, are you open or something? Or, I don't know. But I'm assuming they got somebody because the call lasted a minute and five seconds. Um, I'm not judging. But then after that, for a period just about from four o'clock until about 440 or so in that big square, okay? That's a whole bunch of weird phone numbers. Now I've been doing this job for a little while, okay? And I work, I, I deal a lot with, with things involving the sex trade, okay? This right here looks like people that were looking for girls. This looks like people that were calling ads, responding to ads on adult, sites is what it looks like to me. Mm, I don't know. Maybe I don't remember. Okay. So there's an <laughs> awful lot of them. And it's the one, uh, it's a departure from, uh, from phone calls to regular people to all of a sudden phone calls that come back to area codes all over the country. And a bunch of them. So if I were a betting man, and I was just sitting in my chair looking at this, I would say, these guys were answering ads and they were calling prostitutes. That's what I'd say. So then my question to you based on this theory would be, did Nikki answer one of those ads? No. Mm -mm. Okay. Like I said, the only, only thing that I encountered was just Saw her down the street, and that's it. So you literally just ran into her I on the street? swear to God. Did you guys drink anything together? Um, I did have vodka with me, and I offered some vodka for her. Okay. Um, didn't know if that was important to mention, but... Um, so I, I gave her my jacket and that bottle of vodka. Yeah. All right, David, so... Yeah, I don't know. It just seems... Uh, it's, it's, it's troubling. I know. Because you're the very last guy that I don't want to say see her to see her alive. Cause I don't really know if she's she's dead or alive. But you know, I wish I wish I could help you more. But I I I don't know. I'm not a kind of person to. I'm not even a violent person. You know, at all. Nothing. What did David say during this interview about? his culture and Nikki being trans and, and his sure. thoughts on that. Uh, you know, just paraphrasing for him, uh, cause he's not here. Um, is a fairly, you know, conservative, socially and religiously conservative community. My, my culture, I mean, I was born here, but my culture, my roots and everything is for me, it's even disturbing when I'm around a gay person or somebody bi or transsexual or something, you know, so. Uh, but you know, the, the family is very much culturally Russian and his parents are from Russia. He essentially said that you know in their in their culture that there there's no room at all for uh, for gay people or for trans people or anything. You know, for him, he said he finds it uh, he found it very disturbing. In Russia, it used to be illegal to be gay. 
Same-sex relationships were not decriminalized until 1993, but currently there are no laws prohibiting discrimination against gay and trans people. In a 2019 study by the Pew Research Center, 74% of those surveyed in Russia said homosexuality should not be accepted by society. David points to that aspect of his culture as an explanation for how he reacted to finding out Nikki was transgender. Like I said, when I found out that that's who she is, and I don't know how I didn't catch on sooner, but it must have been because I was so drunk, <laughs> drinking all night, you know, and then once when the subject came up somehow, whatever way that was, I, I just got disgusted and I asked her to just get out. So for me, it's just very disturbing and disgusting when, when people are like this. I, don't know. I sort of felt that he had essentially told me exactly why he killed her. Just denied that he killed her. Denied that any of that took place. And what was missing was, you know, the thing that really sparked it. He denied that there was any sort of sexual aspect to this saying that he was just being a nice guy and that he seen her walking on the street and it was late at night and he was just sort of being gentleman, gentlemanly, looking out for her, which, you know, and he's also admittedly being very intoxicated, you know. And so I hear I have somebody who's, who's calling up prostitutes, who's, going to the, who's calling up the adult video store, who's picking up this young lady and by his own admission, he's super drunk. And, you know, after going over with him again, that she just got into the van and just simply just walked away, I just said to him, David, that's not how people go missing. People don't go missing by getting out of the van and walking off down the street. Do you, do you see why I want to talk to you? I mean, she talked to you. She was in the car with you. Um... She comes home after a night out. She tells her roommates a story about a Russian guy that she was with. She comes home wearing a coat. She comes home with a bottle of vodka. She comes home seeming like she's kind of out of it and kind of stoned or drunk or something. And then she says she's going to go back out with him and he's going to help her get a phone. And that kind of lines up with what you say. Um, but I know from the Snapchat records that at one point you give her your address, or Stan's, Stan's address, and that you go and you pick her up, that your car is out there, or your, your device is out there near her place. Then you pick her up, and you take her somewhere, and then she's never heard of again. Mm, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. The last I saw of her was when I asked her to get out of the car, and that's it. And that was just right there in the middle of the street. We just, we just started driving out. See, that's not how people disappear. That's not how stuff happens to people. What's it like to complete an interview? You, you can't, you want, you know that something happened, you know there's a possibility that that person committed a heinous crime, but there's nothing you can do legally yet. Sure. Yeah, that's hard. You know, because I don't have a body and I don't have an admission. You know, if, if an admission had taken place, the, the, the case could have been wrapped up right there. So is it, you know, is it frustrating? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, I guess, yes, it is. I've got a mother who is still horribly worried. Um, I've got a public out there who's just wanting to know who this Russian guy is that everybody's talking about. 
Um, and here I am talking to the Russian guy, you know, and it's a little bit frustrating to, to not be able to just be, be done with that and get to the answer. On, on the other end, though, detectives or officers in general like to lock people down to a statement. If they're making a denial, you want to get that denial locked in. And so they can't, they can't wiggle their way out of it. And so that's what you have to work with is, uh, is a denial that can later in court be attacked, uh, especially if he decides to get up on the stand. The thing that concerns me is that's not how people disappear. Getting out of a car and walking away is not how people disappear. People disappear by getting picked up by somebody that they've never met before. That, that's, well, that's usually where you, you don't hear from anybody again. If someone get, is, gets dropped off and walks away, they might get hit by a car, they might fall in a ditch, they might meet with some kind of accident walking along the side of the road or whatever. That's not typically the, the point where people just disappear into thin air. I don't know what to tell you. Okay. So what do you think happened to her? I have no idea. Is she alive? I don't know. The men sit in silence for 38 long seconds. The tension is so high, it's palpable. Did you ever get your coat back? Yeah. And after questioning him for 49 minutes, Detective Jensen completes the interview and watches as David Bogdanov walks out the door. But he won't be a free man for long. Next time on Should Be Alive. I thought she was going to be home for Christmas and I wanted to have a card for her. Me being that older brother, like I'm supposed to protect her. Very rarely do we get good enough information that we know exactly where a body is and go find it. Move the line. It was obvious that yes, we had a human body out here. And I just fell to my knees and the next thing I know he was holding me. We're looking for some really tiny things like teeth and fingernails. The longer it's been out there, the more it starts to take on the characteristics of its surroundings. Hold the line. Hold the line. They were finding hair extensions and female clothing, so we were pretty sure this was going to be Nikki. Should Be Alive is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please follow and leave us a rating or review. We've got a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures, on kgw.com slash shouldbealive and on the KGW YouTube page. This show is written, produced, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. 
The Vault Studios team includes Will Johnson, Reed Redmond, and Ian Hill. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin and Nick Bieber. Audio assistance by Andy Thomas and Vince Jones. And digital media by Louisa Anderson and Celeste Ruiz. Marketing and promotion by Will Mahon and Jennifer Woodruff. Our Tegna legal counsel is Will Herman. Special thanks to Lyndon Walls with Idea Stack Creative, KGW General Manager Steve Carter, News Director Greg Retzinas, and the entire KGW staff. And if you like this show, check out our other podcasts, Urge to Kill and The Yellow Car.